Let's pray before we get into God's Word. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for speaking to us. I pray the Holy Spirit would lead and guide in this teaching and You would convey to our hearts the things You desire for us to know. Most of all, what Paul is emphasizing in this chapter, Lord, help us to learn what he was instructing these believers with uh, about their question about idols, Lord. Help us, Lord, to learn the things you want us to learn. I pray it would edify and build us up as a individuals, as a body, Lord, and that you would just anoint the word and it would accomplish what you desire to accomplish. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. Okay, so we're going to start off here in 1 Corinthians 8.1. And this chapter starts with another question. Remember, Paul is just dealing with issues in this church. Uh, and so this is just another question that they're asking him advice on. So it starts off now concerning things offered to idols. This is what they're wanting to know. Um, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So again, this whole chapter is going to deal with this whole thing about eating food that was offered to idols. And I want to just, I want us to bear in mind that this isn't just like a separate religious thing that they were involved in at one time, a little part of their life, and now they're Christians, and you know, we, we got to kind of find a balance with this thing. We got to understand that in that day, in Corinth, this whole idea of idolatry and the feasts and the food that went with that was permeated in the whole culture. It was in the political system. It was in the customs. It was in their just fellowship with one another. It was in their business interest. In other words, it touched every part of an individual's life, this whole idea of idolatry and everything that went with that. It was just part of the culture. We could almost relate it to, in a different sense, what we deal with in our culture. Um, there's idolatry in our culture, but it's different. It's not what they were actually dealing with. It takes different forms than it did for them. So I just want to say that so we understand this isn't just like a little side issue. This is like part of living in that society. It, and it touched every aspect of their lives. So um, concerning these things offered to idols, he now uh, kind of uses the words probably that these Corinthians used. So it's kind of almost like in third person. We know that we have all knowledge. In other words, what's Paul saying? We understand, we know that these foods that we're eating, these idols that they were offered to, they don't, they're not nothing. We, we don't believe in that. We know that's not God. We know who the real God is. We have knowledge about this. That's kind of basically what they're saying. We're not ignorant into regard of the nature of idols. 
And we know that that's what it's talking about because further down we'll see in verse 10, he says, if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, um, and then in verse 7, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge. So that's what it's talking about. When it talks about knowledge that we know this idol is nothing, so it's not a big deal to us to eat the meat. You know, we're okay with it. We understand that this idol is not God. We know who the real God is. We have that knowledge. But he says for them, but not everyone has that knowledge. And for them, it's a stumbling block. That's the whole point. So we know an idol is nothing. So the idol can't, to us, who have this knowledge, defile the meat we're eating. But Paul's next statement summarizes really the main emphasis of this whole chapter. And this is what I want us to take away as individuals and as a church body. Because this is really what Paul's getting at when he says, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Knowledge puffs, puffs up, but love edifies. In other words, knowledge without love is selfish, it's opinionated, and it doesn't think about the needs and the interests of others. Knowledge without love just breeds pride and selfishness. And so that's what Paul is getting at. Because love, you think about it, right? Love cares more about others. It isn't focused on what I think, what I know, and what I feel like I can do. It's always considered, it's always thinking about the interests of other people. Right? What does it tell us in uh, Philippians 2, right? Look not out every man for his own things, but every man also for the things of others. So, knowledge without love is the total opposite of having the mind of Christ which is going to put others before ourselves. So the conclusion is that love to God and love to each other is a better guide. It's a better standard to use than mere knowledge. Okay? That's what he's getting at. Because it's going to prompt us to seek the welfare of others, and it's going to help us to avoid what would injure or cause someone else to stumble. The man who only relies on his knowledge is heady, high-minded, obstinate, contentious, troublesome, perverse, opinionated, and a lot of the difficulties in the church arise out of someone like that. And I've seen it. So, he goes on in verse 2, so he says, so if anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. In other words, if anyone is conceited or proud about what he knows and maybe even despises others that obviously don't know what they know, is missing the most basic knowledge that we all need to remind ourselves is more important. And it's really the fundamental truth that we are wretched sinners. 
that before the cross, we are all the same. And the knowledge that God died for me when I didn't deserve it. And that He gave me grace, that He forgave me much. And I know that because He made it real to me. So I know the love of God, that knowledge. I know the love of God because it was revealed to me through the work of the cross. And God made that real to me. And I came to know the love of God. And that humbles me. That does the opposite of what intellect knowledge does or just knowing things. That knowledge humbles me. And it actually makes me esteem other people better than myself. And that's the knowledge. You know, if anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. That's what we should know. First and foremost, the knowledge of God's love and mercy towards us in the work of salvation. Us who have been forgiven much. When we lose sight of this knowledge, all other knowledge or gifts will corrupt us. Instead of doing what God intends it to do, which is to edify and to bless others, it actually becomes a source of corruption. And I'll give you an example of that in 1 Corinthians 13, where it says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy, and here's, again, talking about mysteries of knowledge, understand all mysteries, all knowledge, though I have all faith, so that I can remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. And then verse 3 says, but if anyone loves God, this one is known by Him. This is a statement that all professing believers should take very seriously. Because it's the conclusion or the final outcome of knowledge either void of love or knowledge that's accompanied with love. And there's going to be two results with that. God's either going to know you or He's not going to know you. If any man truly is abiding in God and is seeking to serve Him and to promote His glory, the sense is there is no true, real knowledge that isn't connected with the love of God. That's like a really important statement. A man could know a lot about God. I, I think about my own testimony. Uh, I knew a lot about God. I could tell you a lot about God, but I was the most selfish person in the world. My heart, my inside world, everything still revolved around me, but I knew a lot about God. I had knowledge of God, an intellectual knowledge of God, that I even agreed with and believed but I was still, still selfish. I was still a rebel. I was still doing my own thing. 
God didn't know me. That's important. I had knowledge, but I wasn't known by God. Again, a man could know much of God, and yet God may be ashamed to know him in the next life. But a soul that sincerely loves God is beloved by him, and he shall be owned and acknowledged by him. So I'm going to just read a couple of scriptures that speak about that. 1 John 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world. So this is the knowledge Paul was talking about, that we should know. That if we think we know something, but we're absent of love, we need to, we think we know something, we need to know what we're supposed to know. And it's this, what this verse is talking about. That God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, if you know that, if you have that knowledge, we should also love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. And His love has been perfected in us. By this we know we abide in Him. And He in us because He has given us His Spirit. Psalm 1-6, talking about the Lord knowing us, says the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the young godly shall perish. Second Timothy two nineteen says, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. So let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And then the verse we all know. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand and the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And that really is just a picture of judgment. One day, the true 
intents of the hearts of men will be exposed. And we'll either stand in the judgment or we won't. And we're all heading to the judgment seat of Christ where we're going to be judged, uh, not necessarily by what everyone saw, but by who we were inside. And obviously, we, we understand the whole Sermon on the Mount is dealing with that outward religion versus mercy, basically, from the heart and loving other people. So I want that knowledge, I personally, for myself, I want that knowledge always the most foremost in my mind. Not necessarily everything I'm doing on the outward, but what is motivating me? Am I being motivated by love? Am I remaining in the knowledge that's most important, the mercy that God has had on my life, the reality of His love that I didn't deserve, that compels me now in life to live my life in that reality and to make sure I'm walking in it towards others. That's what Paul is getting at in this chapter. So now he goes back to the question in verse 4. He says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know an idol is nothing in the world. So he's, again, we know this. We have this knowledge that there is no other God but one. We know this. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God. So again, that's the knowledge. We know this. One God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things, and through whom we live. So, he's talking to those who, again, have this knowledge that are good with eating food given to idols because they have this knowledge. We see many examples in the Old Testament. Maybe they, um, this was more real to them now. Uh, maybe if they heard Psalm 115 where it talks about this, where it says, Why should the Gentiles say, So where is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. Their idols, so now they know their idols, what I used to serve, what this Corinthian city is still worshiping, what I used to be in. They're just silver and gold. They're the works of men's hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. Noses they have, they don't smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. And those who, ma who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. O oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. So again, that's great to know that. And they were priding themselves on, hey, you know, we're good with this. We know that. We know this. These idols are nothing. They're dead, you know. They're the work of men. Our trust is in God now. I have no problem eating food that's offered to those idols. I know they're nothing. We know this. But now Paul reminds them of something. Verse 7, he says, However, I know you know this. <laughs> However, there is not everyone that has that knowledge. 
for some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as things offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Everyone doesn't feel the way or think the way you do about it. And for them, it's a stumbling block and could actually lead them into sin and maybe back into their idolatry. You know, our walk with God, our relationship with God is a lot deeper than to than mere circumstances. It's, it's a matter of the heart. We make it too much about the outward and it really is a matter of the heart and what's going on in our hearts. That's what Paul is getting at here. Because God looks at the motives. He looks at the thoughts. He looks at the moral actions of men. The thing of eating meat or abstaining from it, it's not going to make someone better or worse in standing with God. It just isn't. So, Paul's argument or his reply to the argument follows with verses 9 through 13. So this is his warning, instruction, admonition uh, to this question, to what they were asking. He says, listen, beware, verse 9, lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. Galatians 5.13 talks about this. It says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only don't use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. They were getting in it about circumcision here. Um, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. In other words, deny yourself. Crucify the flesh. And yield to the Spirit. Let the fruits of the Spirit manifest in your life towards others. Romans 14 also deals with this issue, so I'm going to read that. If you want to turn there, you can. Uh, where he says in Romans 14, verse 1, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but don't dispute over doubtful things. For one believes he can eat all things, but he who is weak only eats vegetables. I've been there. I've got to be honest with you. Um, uh, I know Brian's a, a vegetarian, um, but in my past, I'd be, be like, or some people are pretty adamant, like, oh, no, that's how they ate before the fall, you know, and that's how we should be eating. We shouldn't be eating meat or whatever. And we get in all these arguments and all. So when I heard Brian was a vegetarian, I was like, oh, okay, i got to be careful, you know. But no, he's saying no. Um, but you, you see how we get about things that really... We're making an issue of something that God's not making. If you want to be a vegetarian, God bless you, brother. <laughs> if I want to eat meat, God bless me. <laughs> you know? um, let's eat and glorify God, right? 
Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. Let, let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another. Of another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. So there's all these gray issues that we want to debate over. They don't matter. He who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. He who doesn't eat, to the Lord does not eat, and he gives thanks. None of us lives to himself. No one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There's that idea of we're going to give an account of what we did inside. We'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this. And this is what Paul's getting at in the chapter we're looking at. Not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. I know I am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, don't let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is, is acceptable to God and approved by man. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify one another. You could just take this chapter at face value. This is how you just need to take this, right at face value. It's pretty black and white. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things are indeed pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor to do anything but which your brother stumble or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For from whatever is from faith, or sorry, whatever is not from faith is sin. So does that mean I can do anything I want? As long as I say, well, I don't, I'm not convicted about it. Well, no, that's not what it's talking about. This is talking about the things he's talking about. Not clear 
teachings of Scripture that teach us what we should and shouldn't do um, to where we know we're sinning because the Word of God tells us. Um, he's dealing with these gray issues, these things that really don't matter, that we get all in it about. We start judging one another, and it doesn't, it doesn't uh, edify, and it actually causes people to stumble. So, 1 Corinthians 10.31 kind of sums it up. Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. If anyone, verse 10 now, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? Now, I had a question when I read that. And uh, there was a few of the commentators that had the same question. Um, so I felt like I was maybe on the right track there. But the question that came to my mind was, why would a Christian anyway want to be in a temple that they used to worship idols in anyway? You ever think, think about that? Like, why were they even in there? And Paul wasn't condemning them for it, but what were they even doing in there? That was their old life. And a lot of times, believers still like want to participate and do the things or be in the atmospheres they, they want to be in. And I'm not saying that's necessarily, oh, they're in sin. or whatever, But why would you want to be? Unless God's called you somewhere and you're preaching the gospel and there to be a light, which, you know, I've heard that before. I question it sometimes. you got to be called. Um, but I'm talking about just doing life and, you know, that's what they're doing, obviously. So I'm going to read what one of the commentators says. He says, is it not strange that any professing the knowledge of the true God should even enter one of those temples? Is it not more surprising that any Christians should be found to be feasting there? But by all this, we may see that the boasted knowledge of the Corinthians had very little depth in the things purely spiritual. So, what would that atmosphere be like? Would it be glorifying God? I mean, they're celebrating. It was usually a feast, a, a time of celebrating the idol. There would be great banquets, all often followed by the sacrifice. And so you have this weaker Christian that sees a stronger one, maybe a leader, sitting at this banquet, and it leads this younger believer or a weaker believer to start believing, well, hey, they're doing it, so I can still do this. And the example would maybe encourage them to go back into idolatry. It's a serious matter. That's why I don't drink alcohol. I made a vow that I would not touch alcohol ever again in my life. So if someone has a glass of wine, are they in sin? No. Um, that's why this church has a... Uh, 
code of conduct that we don't endorse alcohol in our fellowship. We don't endorse it in homes when um, our church is gathering. You know, what you do in private between you and the Lord, that's fine. Um, let your faith be to yourself, that's fine. But here in this body, um, it's just something that we have decided we're not going to go there. Why? Um, because I always have the thought, and I'll just be honest with you, um, I've been away at times, I've been on vacation, um, and the thought will pop in, you know, man, I, I could go for a nice cold beer, you know, and I, I like the taste of beer. I was like a connoisseur of beer. Um, who's going to know, right? But if I'm in my office and I'm counseling someone that maybe is uh, a drunkard, and has struggled with alcohol, and they ask me, you know, and I usually share my testimony that, I, yeah, I used to do drugs and whatever, and blah, blah, blah. Well, do you still drink? I want to be able to say, well, you know what? I, it's better for me not to make provision for the flesh, and God delivered me from that. And why would I want to go back to what he delivered me from? Um, I don't. I wouldn't want them to say, "Oh, you do." Oh, so then, or someone hears about, "Well, Pastor Jeff can do it." Well, I can still do it. What's the big deal then? He does it. I remember someone that was going somewhere else was boasting to me how he had found that freedom because they were okay with alcohol. And he was boasting to me like, yeah, we're free. You know, I don't got to be legalistic. And I grieved inside like, you're boasting that you can drink alcohol? And then you hear the stories of people going back. And, you know, especially a drug addict. And that's all it takes, a couple of drinks and your, your self-control, it affects you. And your, your guard is down and off you go. I'm not going to have that blood on my hands. Um, so yeah, I take that very seriously. I want to glorify God. And that's part of my old life. I don't want to go back there. He delivered me from that. But again, I'm not going to condemn someone. That's okay with that. It doesn't bother them. They, they can have a glass of wine at dinner. I'm not, I, who am I to condemn? Who am I to judge them? So you understand? That's my conviction. And it's okay. Um, and we do it at this church because we don't want to cause one to stumble. And from experience, what I have seen, I don't care how you try to do it, somebody stumbles. And to me, it's not worth it if one stumbles. Um, and we'll see the last verse, something Paul says, I think is a good... Uh, Good resolve, maybe, for some of us on some things. Um, I'd rather be, I just read this morning in uh, Daniel, I'd rather be like a Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, uh, although it's a different circumstance. I mean, they're basically being told to worship this idol. But think about it. They could have said, we, well, we know. We know this thing Nebuchadnezzar set up. We know that's not a true God. Everyone else is doing it. I'm sure there was plenty of other Jews in the crowds that were bowing down because they're the only ones that stood out. So, so we know. So, all right, we'll just bow, whatever. We know. 
that's not the real God. So Lord, you say we're going to bow to this idol, but you know, we know, we have this knowledge, so just, you know, Lord, we know. We know you're the real God. Well, maybe they thought, no, I see my brothers and sisters already sliding into the idolatry of this land. They're already embraced. They're letting go of the true worship of God. And someone's got to take a stand. I'm not setting my foot on that slippery slope because um, once you get down that pathway, you're headed down a slippery slope. I'm not even putting my foot on it, and I'm not going to encourage others to do it. So no, I'm not going to bow down. we got to take a stand, so especially now in our day that we're living. Again, it's not about legalism. It's about honoring God, and it's about not causing others to stumble. This is the main issue. It's not about us. It's about others that are weaker, that are being pulled into the system of this world, that are all caught up in the, in the spirit of this world. At some point, we've got to come out. We've got to be separate. We've got to leave that behind. Not just for ourselves, but the sake of others and for the honor of God. And that's what they were in. We've got to take a stand. So, verse 11. Here's the seriousness of it. Because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? That's serious. It's a serious matter. Shall the weak brother perish? In other words, because you see no harm in eating, you'd be willing to grieve the Spirit of God. You'd be willing to possibly cause someone else to slide back into their idolatry and go back into their old lifestyle and perish in it? Is it worth it? Verse 12, When you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 18.6, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. These little ones, he's not talking about children. He's talking about childlike faith, someone that's come into the faith that has believed in Christ. If you cause one of these to stumble, it's better for you. If a millstone were tied around you, you ever see what a millstone looks like? It's a serious issue. Again, we should, by our lives, by the way we live, be leading people out of this world. We should be careful, even though we have liberty. We do. We still need to be careful that we don't allow our freedom for us to indulge in the flesh or to lead someone else that would cause them to indulge in the flesh or lead them astray more than anything. Galatians 5.13 says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another in humility and in love. Scripture clearly says this about our past lives. 
1 Peter 4.3. We've spent enough time in our past lifetime doing the will of Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. People should see we're different. We don't go to the same places. We don't do the things we used to do. We stand out. We're different. We don't look like the world. Romans 13, verse 13 says, Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness or lewdness and lust and strife and envy, but let's put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. So, another question that came to me. Why would a Christian, someone who loves God, want to participate or copy the world in his or her conduct, entertainment, sometimes dress, sometimes what we do to our bodies? Again, that's between you and God. Um, But how can these things maybe be affecting our witness to those around us? If we look the same do the same things, talk the same, dress the same, do the same things they do. How are we being a light? How are we standing out for Christ if we're still like the world in so many different ways and we're not different? Again, you've got to guard yourself from legalism, um, holiness that just is on the outward. It's a heart issue. It really is. It really is a heart issue. Um, we should stand out. We shouldn't fit anymore. Fit in anymore. We should do everything for the glory of God. Does whatever I'm doing, does it glorify God or not? Is it leading others to Christ or is it not leading others to Christ? That's what the kind of things we should be asking ourselves. So he finishes in verse 13 by saying, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again. And that's kind of how I felt with alcohol. I'll never do it again. It's not that important to me. Whatever it might be. I'll never do it. I'll never eat meat again lest I make my brother stumble. So the conclusion is, um, Paul says, I'd rather abstain forever from any type of fleshly desire or whatever, then give occasion of sin to any of my brethren. On a smaller scale, in any certain place or time, I would refuse to eat flesh offered to idols for my brother's sake. Rather than offend my brother, or really, better word would be, cause my brother to stumble. Lead him into sin. Not... There's a difference between someone just getting enraged and that's self-righteous. It's, it means leading someone into sin. Someone who's sincere, but you're leading them astray because of what you're doing. You know, because if, if we did it the other way where people just got self-righteous or whatever, well, then we'd be like conscious of or worrying more about what people think than what God thinks. So that's 
talking more about leading someone into sin that is sincere. Lest I uh, offend or cause my brother to stumble, I will eat no flesh. I'll dispense with it. It's not that important to me than the happiness or the conscience of my brother or sister. So, the, I guess, title I would give to this chapter is Knowledge versus Love. Knowledge versus Love. So if I say I have knowledge, let's make sure I have love. And I would apply that to our personal lives, but also, you know, to this body and when we're around other believers and, and obviously when we're around the lost. What is motivating us? We need to apply these truths in our bodies. We're called to crucify the flesh. We're called to deny ourselves. Love should overrule any kind of liberty we think we have. Love should always overrule that. And so that's a good phrase to hold on. Love should overrule what I know is my liberty in Christ. Love should always overrule that. So walk in humility and love for God and others needs to be our standard, regardless of what we think we know. So again, that's where our alcohol policy comes from for this church. And I've had people get upset about that. And again, we're not judging anyone that um, would have a beer or have wine with their dinner, that's fine. But here in this body, and I know for me personally, as the pastor, um, I have resolved never to do it again. I don't want to cause someone to stumble. I don't want to lead someone back into their old lifestyle or into sin. So let's let love be our standard. Um, Lord, we thank you um, just that we can look to your word for all these different issues that come up, Lord, I thank you, God, that uh, we can gain wisdom from your word and truth. And I pray you'll help us to take it in to our hearts and not just to be hearers, but to really apply the principles that Paul is teaching in this chapter and how we live our lives, Lord, the things we do and the things that we are at liberty to do, but Lord, I pray that we'd all be motivated by love and we'd be sensitive to those around us, Lord. That we wouldn't be a stumbling block to anybody, Lord, but we would walk in love towards our brothers and sisters, Lord. So just uh, protect us, Lord, from that slippery slope of knowledge that puffs up rather than knowledge that is coupled with love, Lord. I pray that would be our testimony individually and and in this body as well, Lord. Just help us, Lord, not to fall into this trap that they did in this church, Lord. So uh, we thank you and we trust you, God, to um, work these truths into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.